Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Kai Podcast for our sixth episode. I'm your host, Vedant Nair, and I'm here with a really awesome guest. Um, Anant Veluvali is the founder and CEO of Admit Yogi, where him and his team are working on ways to make you know college admissions more equitable with their software product. Um, being someone who just went through the cycle a few years ago, I know how hard it is, and I know how valuable their product is going to be uh, for people like me in the future. So super awesome to get to talk to him. Um, I met Anant and his team at Tiger Launch a few months ago where they placed second, uh, deservedly so. Um, great team, great product, and I know this will be a great conversation. Anant, thanks for joining us. Super excited to have you. Thanks so much, bro. Super happy to be on the pod, Vedant, and uh, you and the whole team at Clips AI is doing awesome stuff as well. Thanks. Thanks, my man. All right, let's dive into it. Very cool. Um, you know, Anant, I think there's like a, a lot of places we can start with you. Even in high school, you were entrepreneurial yourself. Um, you know, you founded Rally and actually made a lot of good traction there. For you, like, what was that itch? Like, why entrepreneurship? Why were even at a young age were you, were you um, chasing down that path? So actually, for the longest time, was really interested in politics and I thought that the career path I was going to pursue was, by the time I was 40, I was going to be senator, 50 president, 60 retired and living life. And then COVID happened. And I saw how dysfunctional our Congress was. I saw how inept many politicians were in reacting to one of the most momentous moments in American history. And I reflected and I thought, you can make a big difference in politics, but you have to wait decades to do so. And I'm an impatient guy. So I was kind of reflecting, it was like, that maybe isn't for me. Along that time, I, I picked up Zero to One by Peter Thiel. I think for many people, that's kind of their first introduction into the world of entrepreneurship and the idea of bringing something that literally did not exist before and birthing it into the world or making such a significant improvement that he materially improved the lives and outcomes of quite literally millions, if not billions of people, that fascinated me. Because that's what politics is about, or at least on paper is supposed to be about. I think entrepreneurship is trying to do the same thing. It's about leaving the world a better place than when you found it, as maybe cliche as that sounds. So to me, that was really riveting, super exciting. Rally was kind of a marriage of my two interests, politics and entrepreneurship. We worked with local political campaigns, provided them with data-driven consulting. And it was a lot of fun, took up a lot of my time though. And after I'd gotten into school, I was kind of wanting to take more of a backseat and focus on the next big project, whatever that may be. So it was a great learning experience, but um, I'm definitely glad to have done it. Yeah. And like you talked about as a great learning experience, I guess, what did you learn about what it meant to be an entrepreneur building businesses? What do you remember some of the mistakes that you made that um, you're like, okay, next time around, I'm going to make sure to patch this up. Oh, there were so many mistakes. I think <laughs> I, I kind of just went into it just like, oh, I'm going to start something, jump into it. I have no idea really what I'm looking for, what I'm trying to build. So for the first few months, I was just kind of like, I, I just kind of meandered and was building out a business that I had no idea what I really wanted from it. I just threw different ideas at the wall without ever really kind of thinking about it more systematically or programmatically. With Admit Yogi, again, I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm not trying to make it seem like I have all of my stuff figured out or anything like that. But I think I was able to realize, hey, here's what I need to do. We got a first kind of built out like a lean MVP for this product. Let's give it to a small group of people, see how they react with it, iterate as necessary. You need to religiously study customers. You need to figure out what are the messaging themes they are most attracted to and really hammer in on those. We have to build a flywheel that ensures that we can turn visitors of our website into subscribers on our email list, 
and to potential purchasers of our product, to potential people who are referring friends to our product before long, we built a whole ecosystem. So I think honestly, it just, it gave me the, the time and ability to think about business more structured. And the other thing too, is I think it really helped me learn how to sell because I was selling to, you know, 60, 70 year old politicians. And here I was a 16 year old kind of nervously making these phone calls, sending out emails. I had no idea how to cold email or how to prospect a client. And I mean, I'm still learning that I think sales is a continual learning process, but I, I think I've definitely improved in that respect, or at least I hope so. Gotcha. Wow. Very interesting. Um, I think there's a lot of juicy pieces to pick apart from that, but I guess one thing before we really dive into Admit Yogi and I guess what you're doing now, um, with, with the most respect that I hope that you, I can convey to you, you are one of the best orators that I've ever had the chance to, to hear um, in, in person. And uh, I remember specifically during Tiger Launch being um, very impressed with how you delivered y'all's pitch. And, you know, for you first, like, why do you think that being able to be good at public speaking is, is such a power? And, you know, for people who want to improve those skills, like, what would you recommend to them? I really appreciate it, bro. Um, that's high praise. I, I don't know if I'm, I'll be fitting of that, but I, I appreciate the compliment nonetheless. Um, I think the way I would kind of analogize it is it's like, if you had the ability to kind of like if you had a magical superpower that allowed you just have like a tongue that was golden, you could say anything and it became a reality. You could convince anyone of anything. People would take that power in a heartbeat. Now, obviously such a superpower doesn't exist, but if you really hone in and craft your ability to speak well in public, well, you're getting close to that. Where your thoughts, there's no disconnect anymore between your thoughts, which are so creative and exciting, what you get to say. Because there's so many people who are so deeply intelligent, whose thoughts are so rich, yet they're constrained by their ability to articulate them. I think that's the power of oral communication. As far as becoming a better public speaker, I think most people take it too seriously. It's just a matter of having a conversation with the person and understanding if you were in their shoes, what would you want? More often than not, what we're looking for is we're looking for connection and we're looking for authenticity. And we do a really good job of subconsciously picking out the behaviors that make someone feel authentic and make someone feel approachable. The art of public speaking is an art of taking these subconscious behaviors, these nuances of speaking that people pick up on without realizing it and verbalizing what historically has not been verbalized. It's realizing that there's certain things that make your delivery much more effective. Analogies, I'm a big fan of those. You paint these colorful pictures, you're resting your laurels on things that people are much more familiar with to contextualize an otherwise unfamiliar situation. Conversational speaking, we just talked about that. I think it's also just about the way you carry yourself. There's an element of present, of body language that can either convey, you know, someone who's maybe duplicitous or they're, they're, they have an ulterior motive versus someone who's kind of more approachable. And it has everything to do with the way that you're literally carrying yourself when you're talking. Gotcha. Wow. The boy with the golden tongue. I think that might have a, have a ring to it. Um, yeah, I guess the last thing I'll say is that I definitely do feel like presence is super important. It felt like, you know, whenever you were speaking or whenever a good public speaker is speaking that they have control of the room and they're aware that they have control of the room. And it feels like when the words are coming out of their mouth, it's almost like a dance. Like, you know, there's there's a really nice cadence to it. Everyone is not just waiting to hear what they're saying, but hear how the next word even sounds out of their mouth. And it makes the speech that much better. So, um, well, in that 30 seconds, thanks for that masterclass. Definitely going to um, put some of that into practice, but uh, we'll, we'll keep moving on. Um, so yeah, 
just graduated, going into your freshman year at Stanford, um, a lot of ideas, like you mentioned, bubbling around in your head. Talk to me about Admit Yogi. How did that kind of become conceptualized um, and then, I guess, into into a product where we are now? Yeah. So I'm a freshman in college. My two other co-founders are freshmen, all of which is to say that we applied to college really recently. So it was only last year for us that we were submitting our college applications to tons of different schools. And those memories are still really fresh in our mind. When we were applying to college, it was a really stressful process. And for a lot of people, we talked to so many of our friends, so many people in the, the ether of the internet have emphasized the same sentiment that applying to college honestly sucks. And the reason is because it's kind of a black box. You have no idea what works or what doesn't work. You're kind of just throwing guesses blindly at a wall and, and hoping that something sticks. And the problem with that is that there've been some people who have somewhat demystified this dark magic. And those people have been college consultants. They promise you that if you pay several thousand dollars, they will give you the secrets to the world. They will tell you how to get into college. They will tell you how to craft a narrative that is so compelling that admissions officers are champing at the bit to accept you. And the higher the price, the more credibility that they ostensibly carry. But the problem is that the average college consultant in America will charge you upwards of $6,000, which is money that quite frankly, most people don't have. So where does that leave most people? It leaves them working with supremely well-intentioned, but ultimately under-resourced high school counselors who are servicing you and 499 other students on average. And what, what good can they do in such a limited amount of time when they have such a limited bandwidth? And keep in mind that a college counselor's role is not just to help with college admissions. They have a ton of other different functions. They're also helping students navigate the process of high school and figure out courses. They're dealing with disciplinary matters. So they're a jack of all trades as well. And all of a sudden, you're expecting that person to truly give you that personalized guidance you need. It's difficult. So what we realize is that applying to college is very difficult. A lot of people don't know where to start. They're looking for inspiration. They're looking for strategies to get in. And the two options right now, college consultants or high school counselors are not sufficient. What we wanted to build was a low-cost solution that let people understand what goes into successful college applications. So we let them read through literally thousands of examples of successful college applications, complete with essays, awards, extracurriculars, and test scores that got people into these incredible schools. And they can use that information to see what does it take to get into that school? How did someone like Vedant get into the school that I got into? What were his strategies? What was his special sauce? And over time, when you have so much data floating around, you can kind of sort through the noise and extract these really impressive insights about what successful applications share in common and what less successful ones share in common. Gotcha. So I guess in a sentence, it's a marketplace for college applications, uh, you know, where you can find and see different college applications that for schools that you want profiles that may be similar to yours or just, just anything really that can help you get that leg up compared to what you had before. So that it's not really just a black box. Exactly. We like to kind of put ourselves as like the check for college apps. Gotcha. Very cool. And so I guess going back towards, you know, right now in this day, you have product traction. That's great. But, you know, before you actually started building, what did validation look like for y'all? You know, you, you yourself knew that you had the problem and maybe your immediate friends, but how did you become confident of that? Okay. This is an idea that can scale. This is, this can be productized. What did you and your team do to make sure that this really was a problem that's important? So, I mean, the first thing, and I think this is an under, 
underutilized resource for a lot of founders is honestly Reddit. Because Reddit has tons of sub-communities with very passionate individuals. For us, one of the big communities is called r slash applying to college. has almost a million members. So you have over a million high school students who are so passionate about college admissions, they are willing to create their own subreddit and talk about it every single day. Very engaged members. That in some form serves as validation. When you kind of read through the comments of such a concentrated community, I think you get further validation that there's something there. The other thing though I will say is that to an extent, I'm of the belief that entrepreneurship is a little bit about shooting from the hip. Like there's no way of fully validating that your product is really needed by the market until you actually put it out on the market. So I think what is much more important than anything else is agility and velocity, where it's once you realize how the market is reacting to your product, making the necessary changes and adaptations necessary in order to have a better product market fit. So for us, it's just like, we can put a ton of investment into this. We can spend a lot of time validating. We have a general belief, a general principle that we think that this is something useful out there. Let's kind of put together something relatively quickly, put it out on the market, see how people react. And if they don't like it, let's see if we can adapt. And if not, like if we're still, like we really think we're hitting a wall, oh well, we wasted like maybe one to two months time. And I, I put wasted in air quotes even then because there's still such a deep learning experience at play. So I would say, honestly, validation is cool. But again, you know, take this with a grain of salt. My opinion is the speed at which you move and the quickness with which you change direction matter far more. Gotcha. And yeah, I, I do definitely, I think I might push back on that a little bit in the sense of, I, I understand where you're coming from. I think it's very important to be lean, especially when you're building product. But, um, you know, I think validation is as much about validating the, the idea and the solution as it is validating distribution. You know, making sure that you can reach the market, that people are aware of what's going on. And yeah, I think there's a side of validation where you do the surveys and you you talk to people and do the interviews and make sure that maybe they have that problem. But like you mentioned, right, your sample size is so small that it's it's pretty much inconclusive. Um, but I think while you kind of do that journey of validating, finding those people, you can find those different channels where you can find more of those people, have repeatable motions and scale them up. So that's that's the only caveat that I would maybe add to that. But that's I definitely fair. Do I, I agree with yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and I guess speaking of that kind of distribution, um, you know, y'all have found a lot of success actually on social media, specifically TikTok. And it seemed like it seems like from talking to you and also seeing your success on on TikTok that some of your distribution has come from that. Um, you know, talk me through that that process of first why that channel how you went about building the presence and why it's been such an important driving factor for y'all even today. So we initially kind of took a kitchen sink approach to distribution. So we tried out just a few different channels to see where we got those initial bites, LinkedIn, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. And what we really found was that for us, we, we started to just get videos that had some virality, not even necessarily virality. First, we were excited though, but even a thousand views on a platform like TikTok. And so we realized that there was something there. I think what makes TikTok special and unique from any other social media platform is the whole idea of a for you page. It's completely algorithmically driven suggestions, which means that anyone can go viral. The way that on Instagram, right, you have like these mega influencers who are guaranteed much more reach because they have like a hundred plus million followers. On TikTok, I can have 10 followers and get a video with as many views as someone who has a hundred million because of the for you page. 
they're not magical, that is. So I think for us, that was really special. It's like, it gives us a huge advantage. And the other nice part of that too, is it guarantees placement. Again, TikTok wants to make sure that people are as engaged as possible. So rather than having to pay money to discover your niche, TikTok will do it for you. They'll see who your videos are attracting. And before long, you can get like a really accurate snapshot of what your customers look like. What are the questions they're curious about? That just kind of helps pave the roadmap for maybe like what types of product you should be building out, what type of content you want to create. Um, so that's kind of how we approach that. We just threw a lot of stuff at the wall. We saw that we got some initial success on TikTok. We doubled down. We were consistent with it. And the algorithm and just, I guess, how cool that is did the rest for us. Yeah. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Things I'm hearing, first, consistency. I think, you know, you can have all the ideas in the world, but if you're not consistently putting out content for at least a few months, I, I don't think that success is um, is likely at all. And, and I think the other thing that you mentioned is like the 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 way that's algorithm algorithmically driven is, is super important. And I agree levels of playing field. Something, you know, I think for a lot of people, TikTok is exciting, Reels is exciting, Shorts is exciting, but, you know, it's hard, it's hard to find success. And I think that something that you mentioned when we talked previously was that the way you started building your presence was actually just by adding value to the community, teaching people about these different insights when it comes to applying to colleges, um, you know, using the trends, really just acting like an actual creator. And then once you've built up that following, slowly start introducing your brand, your business. Can you talk me through that and what that kind of looked like for y'all? Yeah, 100%. I think oftentimes, like trust comes before monetization because when you start to involve people's wallets, financial decisions, especially as the check sizes go up, they want to make sure that you can deliver results or that you are someone they can trust. There are numerous different ways of building that trust. You know, you can have the testimonials, you can have a very credible founding team, particularly let's say if you're like a biotech startup, you probably want like scientists and PhDs on your teams. And in our case, it's we'll build trust by just kind of fostering authentic values and providing help that we would have appreciated when we were applying to school. So it's kind of just putting ourselves, I think it, maybe it's somewhat unique in this respect in that we are the customers of our own product, right? Like we would be the types of people who would have wanted to buy the product. So that kind of gave us a useful roadmap for thinking about what type of content would we, would, should we create? And kind of once we got that initial content, out there, once we got the views, we got the comments, we started to realize what other types of videos we wanted to create. When you are just building out that type of community, like you can sell people stuff occasionally, but I think a, a general rule of thumb to follow is honestly, until you get thousands of followers, you should not have a single promotional post about your product. Uh, for us, it was about 10,000. It kind of depends on your niche. We didn't have a single promotional post about Admin Yoki, the business itself, until we had 10,000 followers. You just put the link in your bio. You'll have curious passerby who are really dedicated. who will click on it regardless, but that's all you should do. And then once you kind of have that sufficient base, maybe one of every six, one of every eight videos should actually be about the business, but the rest should continue to just be high quality content about like the, the particular area you're serving in. So like, let's say you're running a plumbing business, you know, every once in a while you can make a video that's like actually about advertising your plumbing business, but no one's trying to like follow what is the equivalent of a talking billboard, right? They want to follow the person who's giving them really useful advice about plumbing or just cool stuff in that content space. And if they are curious, then they, they will watch the rest of the videos. Maybe they'll click on your bio. They'll be like, they'll, they'll, they'll fully understand who you are and be more willing to buy your stuff. And you can also like, you don't have to even plug your stuff in the video. You can plug it in the comments, in the description. There are ways to still like, promoting your business out there without shoving it down people's throats. Gotcha. 
that that makes sense. And I guess I guess the last thing before kind of talking more about the product and, and the business model itself, you know, and now 2023 and moving forward, do you think that there's viable ways to build B2C companies without using social media as part of your distribution? It feels like a lot of the brands that I'm seeing, Admit Yogi being one, things like Tabs Chocolate, for example, and that's not software, but it's kind of, they've had a lot of success in, in TikTok. Like, it seems like the biggest brands who are performing the best are also doing the best on social media. Uh, like, yeah, what do you think about that? What's your take? I 100% agree. It's actually kind of funny you mentioned Tabs. I, I met the founder, we were talking um, a few weeks back about a very similar thing. Like social media, love it or hate it, it's the name of the game. That's how you get distribution. And 10 times out of 10, people are going to pick the brand they love more that has the same product, maybe even a slightly inferior product to the brand they don't know at all. It just feels very foreign, especially in the consumer space. There's a reason why you're seeing Fenty Beauty taking off by Rihanna. You know, Chamberlain Coffee becoming the big success it is. Why Barstool Sports is so successful. Because at the end of the day, people orient a lot of their decisions around like, you know, influencers or people that they more broadly can just trust. And I think it's about building that trust, building out that, uh, I guess, reliability and authenticity. And social media is a great way of getting distribution in a way that like you can, I, I just don't think that you can do through other methods, like, I don't know, newspapers or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I definitely, it's something that I've thought about a lot, right? Like we, we are more B2B, but I definitely see upside in, in us focusing more on maybe like content like like you guys would make or, or tabs chocolate um it's it's definitely it's definitely interesting for a b2b company too those considerations um but i guess yeah like like moving forward you know now we've built admit yogi the product itself is, is pretty cool but now you need to get people onto the site and like you mentioned it's a marketplace which means that you know there's not there's not only the students who who want applications but the college students who need to sell those applications and now you're having to manage these both sides like for us, you know, like we're, we're just a pure, pure SaaS business. It's a lot different. Like what, what, what do you have to think about when, when trying to manage like a marketplace and, and trying to create those network effects? So with marketplaces, it's always a chicken or the egg question, right? It's like you typically need to recruit one side of your marketplace first in order to drive out the other side. Um, and there are a lot of businesses that indirectly are marketplaces that people don't even think about. Facebook's a good example of this, right? You have, you know, your consumers on one end, just like the people using your platform, and then you have advertisers on the other end. Facebook's the intermediary. Facebook was a demand side oriented marketplace. Like for them, they needed to start with the consumers and build that out. That was their egg that allowed for the chicken to hatch. And those were the advertisers that came only when Facebook had sufficient traction. For us, it was a little bit of the opposite. We are much more supply oriented. We needed the college students first. We needed successful applications on our platform in order to get high schoolers to visit them. So we really kind of spent those first few months trying to build out relationships with college students. And it was just a lot of word of mouth, just like literally us manually kind of recruiting people, like building out marketplaces, especially in the early days is an ugly process. And the way you get from one to 10 users is very different than the way you get from 10 to a hundred or a hundred to a thousand or so on and so forth. So for those first, you know, few users, honestly, it was just a lot of personal conversations, lots of personal talks. And once people kind of saw that there were a few applications on our platform, they were more willing to share their own. And on that side, the supply side marketplace largely grew by itself, which was pretty nice to see. We also did our best to kind of 
add features we thought would even further reduce friction. Like we, we use tools like Postog to kind of see how people on our supply side were interacting with the website. We noticed a lot of people, for example, wanted to share their college applications, but there were certain parts they wanted to hide out. So they'd literally add in brackets the words redacted to it. So we're like, why don't we make that easier for them and just add a redact feature? They can highlight anything easily redacted and it will redact every single instance of that. So if I want to hide something like the name of my hometown, I can really easily do that. We also noticed that a lot of college students are monetarily driven. So we're like, why don't we give them a $5 bonus for referring a friend? And that friend will also get $5 for using their friend's referral code. That was a big part of it. Or just these different types of things that really kind of sped up the process. Once we had kind of gotten that flywheel going, on the demand side, I think TikTok was really big for us. But you can also start to invest in, and this is something we started to focus on now, these other tools. SEO is a lot of people's best friend. I don't think there's enough attention there. Producing just genuinely useful blog content, trying to form blog partnerships with different creators and different people in the space. And before long, there's just a lot more attention on your company, on your website. So a lot of distribution is social media driven, exactly as you were talking about before. A lot of it's through word of mouth. So if you just build a high quality product with big believers in product-led growth, you master some of the distribution channels, at least one big one for us, it's TikTok and increasingly just blog articles and blog content, the demand will come. And before long, you kind of just have a feedback loop that perpetuates itself because supply attracts demand and demand attracts supply. Before long, you really have a nice self-sustained business. Gotcha. That, that makes sense. And I think, I think one thing that I'm curious about, um, cause I've, I've heard, I guess, two different opinions on this is this that, that, that referral piece that you were talking about, you know, college students are monetarily driven. Let's give them a little kick whenever they refer their friend. I've heard from another side that, you know, monetarily um, influencing people to refer doesn't really make sense because you'd rather your strongest customers just refer them because they want to anyway, because you built a good product and, and they feel a better connection. Um, maybe that reduces the velocity of, you know, those referrals, but maybe makes those referrals more sticky, more strong. On the other side, it does make a lot of sense with certain demographics. How did you guys think about instituting your referral system and why did you guys decide to go the way that you did? I think for us, it's like, this is, and it's a totally valid question. I think that's why quality selection and curation matters really early on for marketplaces. Where I think if you can set the culture early, you don't have to worry about a bad culture kind of creeping in later. We set a very strong precedent about what we wanted profiles to look like. And we ensured that the profiles on our platform initially were really high quality. Each application came with dozens of essays, every single activity that student had, additional information sections, quality test scores, did the person's real name, a picture of them, brief background. Like they were very, very, very high quality profiles. And when people saw that, it kind of like set a, a bar for kind of, because people, you know, we're social creatures. We kind of situate ourselves based on how people around us are kind of acting. And they saw what those profiles looked like. They created a profile similar to that. When we implemented a referral system, it was precisely because we were so confident in the quality of our initial profiles that we knew they would set a good precedent going forward. That it's like, we knew that we didn't have to worry about dilution of quality on our platform. We could get the volume and we could still get the quality, which kind of speaks to the trade-off you were talking about. For us, when we were thinking about what a referral system might look like, we didn't want to terribly overcomplicate it. I think this is the mistake a lot of people make where it's like, they, we could have gone the route, which is like, oh, you'll get 10% of the earnings of your friend 
every single time they get a profile unlocked if you refer them. Like that type of stuff does not make sense to people. You have to speak to them in very concrete terms. For most people, cold hard cash makes all the difference. Where it's literally like five dollars to refer your friend, five dollars to literally send out a text in ten seconds. That becomes far more concrete. That becomes just a much more persuasive call to action. And then you kind of see you can experiment with the numbers of how much you pay them out. You can experiment with the different ways you you market that slogan, but you'll you'll kind of over time get a sense of like what is the most effective, I guess like referral program. And more often than not, you'll see it's one that is overwhelmingly simple and can be easily explained. Gotcha. That, that I think that's a very very good explanation of it. I, I do also agree that the friction is super important, even first as an operator, but also as a just regular consumer. Like ten percent off the second month of of your third friend's purchase just doesn't just doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I definitely agree. Um, being being very concrete makes all the difference. Um, something that I noticed actually with with Admit Yogi is that you guys have built a few different uh, free uh, tool sets: uh, the acceptance calculator, internship board, scholarship board, and you know these aren't actually the things that I guess are driving the revenue. Maybe they're um, I guess outside factors that are that are pushing people into the funnel. Um, but they're not the actual things that people pay for, right? Why build those things, you know, spend time, resources, um, brain power executing on those? Um, and how has it made a difference for your company? So, yeah, we're big believers in product-led growth. I think the thing is, it's like, exactly like you said, it kind of gets people into the funnel. It's building out this mousetrap that attracts people onto your website. So for us, it's like, we know that a lot of high school students are searching for stuff about internships. We know that many of those people are interested in college applications. So it's like, if they're not thinking about the problem that we are solving, we can get, but we know that that's a problem they're facing. If we kind of like market another problem, they click on that and they kind of discover the other parts of the website. They'll realize that, Hey, they offer some other really interesting stuff. Cause what you realize a lot of the time is that like, I'll give you an example. If you go back to the 1900s and someone's like, I really want to get, from let's say Minneapolis to Austin more quickly. They're gonna probably be like, they're, they're never gonna be like, oh, you know what I need? I need a car. They probably had no idea what a car was back then. But they understand like the impact of the car. So you can sell them on the impact. We know that a lot of people are really focused on the results of getting into their dream school. But they have different ideas about how to get there. What we're selling, the thing that makes us the money is successful college applications. We know that not everyone is thinking about successful college applications to get to the end goal. Some people are thinking about internships. Some people are thinking about scholarships. So we capture their attention with that. And then we put them to what we believe is the best solution. And we sell them to the quality of our website. And because these are kind of pet projects, they don't necessarily take too long to build. Like these flywheels, they shouldn't take too long to build. It's minimal investment on our part, but gets us tons of clicks, tons of signups onto our website, and potentially does turn into paying customers. Gotcha. And when making those, I guess we can call them pet projects, like how do you track success? Like what defines something as a good trade-off for your time? Or is it just about, I think you mentioned the word kitchen sink earlier, but just experimenting a lot and finding all this stuff because, you know, at the end of the day, like this is going on your website, like your actual customers will be seeing this. Um, you know, they're, they're, ostensibly, there's a, there's a bar of quality that needs to be met. How do you uh, kind of weigh those trade-offs? Yeah, I think for us, it's like, I mean, we, when you are kind of starting out small, you do want to build out quality products, but 
I mean, over time, your product will improve naturally, right? Like we always know that like our central project will be very high quality. So it's more so about these like secondary projects that are like, honestly, you, you don't even want them to be too high quality is my, my belief. Like they should never take attention away from the main thing. They should just mainly be to pique people's curiosity. And you should just build a ton of stuff. And if it does work, scale it up really rapidly. So that, that's my philosophy. Experiment widely, build quickly, scale rapidly. And I think that's kind of the approach we took where it, we just built out a ton of different things. We kind of saw what worked and what didn't work. There were some projects that didn't work. We kind of delisted them from our website. Others that got a lot of attention, we kind of try to promote those. But the point is, yes, you can kind of slightly improve the quality over time of those. But those projects, they're not, again, they're not money makers. The point is mainly to just get people's foot in the door. And once their foot is in the door, to show them the other stuff and get them really interested in what are the true money makers for your business. Gotcha. And and just in general, when, when growing a B2C business, like how do you think about those funnels and as it relates to growth? What kind of parts of the conversions are you tracking? And yeah, how are you measuring success on that side? We're looking at, I think just like kind of the stereotypical measures of just what does our drop-off look like? Like how many people are visiting our website and how's that number growing? How many of those people are clicking on profiles and reading through them? What do the conversion rates look across, like, like across these profiles? Like are there ones that are particularly promising? Maybe we'll rank them more highly on our website. Are there ones that like, Thousands of people are clicking on, but almost no one's making a purchase on. Let's move those towards the bottom. How many people who are adding to cart action and making a purchase? How do we make that number 100%? How do we make sure that if people drop off, we're sending up follow-up emails to ensure that they actually are making a purchase? Just different things like that to really ensure we're squeezing every bit of value possible on that chain. So I think just like the, the stereotypical measures of your active users and kind of what that growth looks like, and then kind of how revenue is growing and, and kind of what the conversion rate looks like. I think those are just the, the big metrics. I honestly don't know if we have any particularly unorthodox metrics we're, we're tracking. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting to ask. I think that everyone has, well, at least for us, like, right. The funnel looks a little bit different than yours does. So um, it's, it's interesting to hear kind of like how the different companies um, do that. Uh, something also that you mentioned earlier is you know, that the obsession with customers. I think you mentioned it a little bit offhandedly, but I think it's very important. Someone who, um, you know, I respect a lot and I'm sure a lot of other entrepreneurs respect a lot is Jeff Bezos. And I think he was one of the first people to really like spread this idea that like you should be obsessed with your customers. And there's like stories about him not being able to sleep because he's thinking about his customers, et cetera, et cetera. For you, why is it really important to empathize and be obsessed with your customers? And I guess, how are you actually doing that in your day-to-day with Adam Yogi? I think, well, at the end of the day, right, your customers are the ones making the purchase. And you have to respect that they are entrusting a financial decision, which could likely involve hundreds, if not thousands of dollars with you. Like, that's actually very special to think that someone spent their hard-earned money, something that took them a lot of time, because they're taking a bet on you, and what you're building. So when you realize that, when you don't take that lightly, obviously you have a constitutive obligation to ensure that your customer is getting the most high quality experience possible. And beyond that, a lot of the times these businesses are attached to your names and a big part of your legacies. So you really want to make sure that it's delivering the best possible experience possible 
like in the annals of history, when they're writing about a company like Admin Yogi or Eclipse AI, that's if this is your first project, your second project, if this is your last project, you want to make sure that they're doing it in a positive light because they're not just speaking to the company, they're speaking to yourself. And the people that have the memory impressions of the company are the ones who are most intimately involved with the product. And those tend to be your customer, like besides like the team, those tend to be your customers. Yeah. So for us, it's just, how do we build an experience that really people would appreciate? Like how, what, like the exercise we went through, this is something Brian Chesky, Airbnb guy, uh, he proposed was like the, the, what does a one-star experience look like? A two-star experience, three-star, four-star, five-star. And what about a six-star or a seven-star? You know what I'm saying? Like what truly yeah. goes beyond even the definition of a five-star experience? We try to think about it very similarly where it's like, what does that home run experience look like? Okay. Now how do you 10 X that? So that's kind of the way we we've thought about customers. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I don't know if you're referring to, I think it's when uh, Brian Chesky talked at GSB, right? I think that's when he said yeah. that the, one star to 10 star, 10 star experience. Yeah. For anyone who hasn't seen that, I think that's a, it was a really, really awesome um, talk. And I think that's actually a practice that we, that we did at one of our meetings, I guess a, a few months ago, I think it's super important. Um, but, but, you know, on that topic of customers, you hear a lot, right. That like the customer doesn't really know what they want. And a lot of times customers say things that I guess they don't really mean. But it's important to listen to your customers. They should be kind of guiding the general direction that you're going. How do you guys listen to your customers? It's a little bit different than us, right? We're B2B, so I guess the volume of customers is a lot lower. And we build, I guess, maybe closer relationships than maybe you would be able to. So I'm curious, like, how, how do you guys do that when it comes to product development, listening to your customers, but also on you being the boss and understanding where the ship should be headed? Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot to manage, but I'm, I'm curious, like, how, how, how you're thinking about that. I think it's like, this maybe is a weird analogy. Like, let's say you're at a restaurant and you tell the chef, surprise me, right? At that moment, you're conveying to the chef a problem, hunger. The chef's role is not to contest the problem, but to create the best possible solution for you, the surprise. What they think is the best plate, something that will satiate you. Think of business in the same way where it's like, you look to customers for problems because the problems they're experiencing are hopefully authentic. Just make sure that they're people who don't necessarily know you intimately because otherwise you fall trapped to like the mom test, right? Which is like, your mom's always going to be so doting and loving or whatever. You know, like the people who are very close to you, yeah. they might invent problems just for the sake of kind of making you feel better about yourself. But then you have to think of the solution. Like you should not entrust solution finding to your customers. And sometimes you'll be wrong. Honestly, more often than not, you'll be wrong. We've been off more often than not wrong. But it's more so kind of recognizing when you are wrong or when you've taken a misstep and quickly correcting course. And I think that can sometimes be uh, the difficult part, but if you, and this is why it goes back to the stuff about velocity and agility. If you can quickly recognize that maybe your solution isn't sticking for whatever reason, like then you can move. Basically what I'm trying to say is don't listen to what your customers say, listen to what they do, right? So like you can truly understand what their problem is, try to build something around that, some solution, and then see how they interact with it. Don't don't listen to what they're saying about it. Like they could say like, yeah, I could see myself using that. See if they actually are using that. If they're not, see why they aren't, if that makes sense. It does. It, it, I think I like that analogy. Uh, you, you said earlier, right? The best speakers really bake in analogies and, and you're doing an awesome job at that. So congrats Appreciate on taking you, your bro. advice. <laughs> um, 
so now, um, you know, Admit Yogi, I think you guys had a really, really successful college application season, did a lot of revenue, turned a lot of that into profit, you know, gearing up towards next year, this summer, what's next? What other sets of problems are you thinking about tackling? What's still concerning to you that you haven't got yet? And what's like the future, you know, when you're all said and done, what does the future of college, you know, applications look like? I think for us, the future is one where admissions are not controlled by a group of consultants that charge literally tens of thousands of dollars in many cases to prey off the insecurities and vulnerabilities of high school students and their parents. And don't get me wrong, I think a lot of these people are very well-intentioned, but I think they're in a bad industry because for them, their whole business relies on to at least to some extent fear-mongering. That's kind of like, I guess, one of our business's hot takes. And I think the other problem is that the consultant mo- model, beyond ne- not necessarily being good for customers, it's not good for the consultants themselves because it's not scalable. Your impact is directly proportional to the number of people you can directly serve. Like the amount of profit I make is X times however many customers I have. If I have 10 customers, my profit is 10X, where X is my the average amount I charge. If I have 20 customers, it's 20X. You can't necessarily make a great business doing that. And my input costs are, you know, if we imagine time to be T, it's be 20T. 20T produces 20X. 10T produces 10X. 5T produces 5X. It's not exactly a great business. You would hope that as you invest more time, your profit grows exponentially. And that's the beauty of software. And I'm sure that's something you've realized. So I think the future of admissions is headed in a software-oriented direction where consultants become increasingly affordable through the lens of software, where software can replace what consultants do, provide them students with high quality and affordable tools that are incredibly precise. Our goal is to continue to stockpile college applications on our platform and over time accumulate insights about what goes into successful college applications. We also want to let people really find applications that are most similar to them. So we're going to continue to invest in AI-driven suggestions to ensure that the profiles they're reading are the ones they'll find the most useful and ultimately, hopefully, just fully disintermediate college consultants down the road. Very awesome. Uh, I really hope that becomes a future. Um, I'm, I'm actually seeing my sister kind of get ready to go through college applications and swear that I have told her to look at Admit Yogi, and I'm sure that she will. Um, Appreciate but, you. you know, college consultants have definitely come across the mind of her and my family. And yeah, um, there's a lot of people who don't have access to those, and even people who do it's it's a very large amount of money and you know if college itself already isn't you know maybe as equitable as it can be at least let's make the application process more equitable so yeah i I applaud you all i mean i i'm i'm sold on the vision and i hope you guys keep executing and being successful and i know you will be um so yeah awesome i guess moving into the the last little part of the show just a few like quick more rapid fire questions asking more about you personally um, and, and then we'll wrap it up. How's that sound? Sounds awesome. Cool. Awesome. Let's do it. So if you could be anything in the world, what would you be? An entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. Good answer. I was hoping you wouldn't <laughs> say president. <laughs> um, and, and what would you say are the things that inspire you right now? Uh, my family. I think the dynamism we've seen come out of a lot of tech companies with this AI surge 
And I think just getting to meet cool student founders like yourself has given me a lot of faith that honestly, we're, we're moving in a good direction. Awesome. Very high praise. Very high praise. Um, and, you know, at Clips AI, like we like to think about, you know, personally and as a team, like what are we trying to become the best in the world at? And, you know, what are our competencies for you? What are you trying to be in the best of the world at? I think I want to be someone that's very good at communicating a vision and mobilizing people around that. So just someone who's very good at operations and selling people on some type of dream and, and getting a, a, you know, an all-star cast to help build out that dream and turn it into an actual reality. Spoken like a true CEO. I love it. Um, awesome. And what, what do you think people wouldn't expect about you? That's a good question. Uh, but I don't know. This is a weird fact. I mean, I, I watch uh, TV and YouTube at 2x speed. I don't know why. Hey man, he he has things to do. He has to finish those videos as fast as he can. Uh, that's that's pretty cool. There's only a few things that I can actually watch in 2x and really consume the information. So, props to you for operating at a higher port, how, at a higher horsepower than the rest of us mortals um, down here on <laughs> Earth. Um, okay, last two questions. Uh, what are you running from, and what are you running towards? These are some deep questions, bro. Um, sorry, sorry to sorry to hit you with the blind side. No, no, I, I like them. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I well, I'm running. I can tell you what I'm running towards. I think that's a future where I've wealth beyond my wildest dreams, and by that I mean, I think wealth is where money meets time. It's your ability to enjoy the money you have, and I think for me, that's living a very comfortable life, ensuring I have generational wealth for my family but also being able to make an actual impact to the companies I create and organizations I create. And I'm running from complacency, I guess. Like I don't ever want to become complacent or kind of just like sit in a cloud of self-smugness and self-satisfaction. Awesome. Well, I love that. I think I, I think I, I'm glad that I reflect the, the, a lot of the same values as you. Um, awesome. Still. Well, thanks Anna, uh for, for joining us on the podcast, I guess. Um, is there anything that you want to plug any way that our viewers can be useful to you? Uh, feel free, feel free to shout them out. Uh, I'm going to link all the admit Yogi stuff in, in your profile in the show notes. Um, but if there's anything else, yeah, feel free. No, that's honestly all. I mean, this has been a great episode. Check out admit Yogi. If you can check out clips, AI, um, Vedant's a great dude, honestly, humble guy, hard worker. So yeah, I, I mean, I really appreciate being on the pod and wish the best of luck for you and your whole team. Likewise, likewise. We'll, we'll both try to keep killing it and um, excited to see what the future holds. All right. Thanks. Anna. Yes, sir. That's it. All right. Cool.